Good morning. Our scripture reading will be from Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. And it reads, The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. This is God's word. You may be seated. I appreciated uh, the comments that John made as we were getting ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. We live in a tough world. We do. And there are so many things that are beautiful in this world that bring a tear to our eyes because of just how vivid that that beauty is. But we also live in a tough world that sometimes brings a tear to our eye because of of the hardship and the meanness and the hostility that at times seems to be pervasive. No one likes war, at least no one in their right mind. But it is a reality of the world as we know it, and so we're grateful that we live in a country where people have literally given all that they have in order for us to be able to experience a measure of freedom, of which religious freedom is one of those. And so uh, before we get into God's Word this morning, I'd like, if you serve in the military or have served, we'd like for you to stand and be recognized. Would you do that? Would you stand and be recognized? Your service is no small thing. It isn't. Let's pray. Father, we wake up and you are already there and you are alert. The first thing when we open our eyes to see is your constancy and your fidelity. Sun up and sun down winter and fall and spring and summer. And this helps us to live in this world, whether in sickness and health, better or worse, in abundance or need. 
our prayer this morning as we open your word up for study is to fix our eyes on you in gladness and to tune our hearing to your word in eagerness so that your presence, your revelation of yourself, your self-disclosure, your word and words, your very presence permeates all of our trouble and every beautiful place of pain and hurt. And we pray, Father, that as we, we come to grips with what you say to us this morning in this, this book that you have gifted us with, Exodus, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we are changed. And this we pray with all of our heart and to all the church said. You know, none of us are perfect when it comes to the study of God's Word. We come to it, whether we admit it or not, with biases, with favorite passages, and even with passages that are a little repulsive to us, the ones that we want to stay away from. But one of the bigger mistakes in doing this is that we make God one-dimensionally. We think about God. Can you believe that? And we would think about God one-dimensionally. And the way that that happens is this. If, if love is the big thing, then when something bad happens to us, we're, some, we're somehow uh, caught off guard. And we're knocked off kilter a little bit because if God is loving and loving of me, then why would something like this happen to me? Or if I believe that God is super gracious and super forgiving, then I don't really care about all of the, 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 the ways that He wants us to live, the ways that He outlines a way for us to live a life worthy of His grace and forgiveness. And so we live any way that we want to. And His Word doesn't really permeate very deeply in our soul because we really prefer the life that is about an inch deep and a mile wide. If, if God is a judge then we live in the early years of Martin Luther like him in the fact that we hate God and we fear him. So we're going to look at this passage this morning and see, I think, a lot more to the picture and the, and the reality and the presence of God than we normally think about. As we saw last week, the relationship between God and Israel has moved from a place of exclusivity where he says only, my people, my people, to a place of intimacy. In chapter 19, he says, I have brought you to myself. He says in the very next verse, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. In other places, he said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God and I'm going to live in the midst of you. And in chapter 19 and chapter 24 of Exodus, the people affirm this covenant that is being made at Mount Sinai. In verse 7, they responded, We will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. And then Moses takes blood from the basin, and he begins to sprinkle it on the people. And once more, they say, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And at that point, Moses begins 
sort of the original CrossFit program. He goes up and down this mountain so many times. He's getting his steps in. And when he goes up and he comes down, it is for the purpose of instruction. He gets the blueprints of the Ark of the Covenant that's given. The table of the showbread, which is a reminder that the reality of God's presence is the realest of all of those realities. That He is present. There's the golden lampstand. We would call it today the menorah, which was a reminder that in the dark places, He is the light. There's the portable altar for sacrifice. There's a portable altar for the incense. There's the garments for the priests. And if you spend any time reading that, it was an audacious set of clothes for Aaron and his sons. There are recipes for anointing oil and incense. I mean, you just all the stuff that went into that, you go, where's the butter? I mean, there's just the, the, the anointing oil and the incense was special. And and all of it, when you read those chapters in Exodus and you read them in Leviticus, it accompanies Exodus, it's very tedious. It, it's hard to get excited about those books for a lot of us. It's like reading the manual for lawnmower maintenance. It's all detailed beyond belief. So we ask the question, why? Why all this detail? One reason, but the big one, is that it was for training. After 430 years of the people living in slavery and living in silence, not a word from God. All of it was training on how to listen carefully to the Word of God. Because for Israel and for us, life begins by listening to the Word of God. Amen? And all of it very detailed, all of it training, and in that instruction there were lessons like the uniqueness and the holiness of God. You don't treat God like you would treat Joe Schmo from Kokomo. This is your creator and your savior. This is your father. This is the author of your freedom. He is God and there's no one like him. How about the Sabbath? Sabbath, the need to stop creative work in order. And the word is given to Moses. It's a sign. And what's a sign? A sign is you look beyond the sign to the reality. You look at creation. You stop your creative work in order to look at God's creative work and to begin to be reminded that all power does not reside in yourself but in Him. All of it tedious but all of it training on how to listen carefully. And then disaster appears. While Moses is on top of the mountain, one of those trips, sons of Israel spiritually unravel. And in chapters 32, 33, and 34, which I think are the high point of the book, there are four things. We see the unfathomable, we see the unthinkable, the undesirable, and we stand back in wonder of the unimaginable. So, so God's human dilemma begins with the unfathomable. In the span of a few months, God has demonstrated His presence, His compassion, His power, His faithfulness, His wisdom, His grace immeasurably more 
than any other time in history save creation. In such a compact period of time, God has revealed all of these attributes and more to Israel. You know what the Rosetta Stone language acquisition program is, right? You, you know nothing about a language, say German. And you buy the Rosetta Stone language plan, and in a matter of weeks you've gained some, some fluency in the language. You arrive in Germany for a vacation, and you're able to say with some fluency, you know, where's the best place to get some schnitzel? The first 20 chapters of Exodus is the Rosetta Stone program for gaining fluency in the knowledge and language of God. Crash course. Learning about God. Now, kind of as an aside, but not really, people throughout history have said, when it comes to the miracles, the signs, if God would just show me a sign, then I'll do what, church? Believe. If God will write his name in the stars, if he'll do some kind of miraculous event in my presence where I'm able to see it, then I'll believe. I'll believe in God. That's really not all that true. At this point in the history of the Exodus, the people have seen the ten plagues, cloud by day, fire by night, parting of the Sea of Reeds, destruction, most powerful military force in the world, manna and water in all places, the wilderness. People who have never fought a battle in their life are one and oh when it comes to the Amalekites. All of these are as big a sign as you want. And then the unfathomable happens. You ever thought about that word? What does it mean? What does unfathomable mean? It means incapable of fully understanding. It means having difficulty getting to the bottom. You can't fully get to the bottom of it. Sometimes the deeper you go, the darker it gets. And then in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, as an aside, it's no wonder that patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? We don't know why. Whatever reason, it doesn't really matter. Aaron goes along with it. And two of the first of the Ten Commandments are shattered. Gold is donated. As Aaron says, he throws it into the fire, and out comes this calf. A golden calf is fashioned. Scholars aren't really sure what the golden calf represents. Is it replacing God, or is it replacing Moses? He's the one they're concerned about. Or is it representing God or some other kind of a God with a little g? Whatever the case Aaron declares that the next day is going to be a feast day and the golden calf is going to be the guest of honor. And as you know from your reading and from our study, this, this feast turns into a national frat party. And right here is one of the big lessons in the Bible, which is, as human beings, you never underestimate the depth or power of your personal fallenness. We are amazingly capable of terrible things. No one lives perfectly. 
Paul tells us that in Romans 3, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all fall short of that glory that was manifest at the top of that mountain in plain view. In that same chapter of Romans, chapter 3, Paul reminds us that Jews and Gentiles alike struggle with a power that he calls the power of sin. It's one of the reasons why Christ calls his followers disciples. It's about living a different kind of a life that takes discipline to make movement into it. It's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit and power comes to reside in the disciples' life, transforming those ingrained habits of sin into a life of righteousness. The greatest break with slavery in the human experience is not the physical one, but the spiritual one. Richard Foster, you've read his book, Celebration of Discipline, many of you, says at the beginning of the book, we are accustomed to thinking of sin as individual acts of disobedience to God. Sin as a condition works its way out through the bodily members, that is, the ingrained habits of the body. And there is no slavery that can compare to the slavery of ingrained habits of sin. End of quote. It's always, my friends, important to remember that sin is not just a momentary lapse of some sort but something that is ingrained. And the unfathomable in chapter 32 leads to the unthinkable. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down, your people, your people, Moses, whom you, Moses, brought up out of Egypt have become what? Say it, corrupt They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They bowed down to it. And they sacrificed to it. And they have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One of the things that theologians do is use big words to try to describe God who is sort of too big to describe, right? One of them is immutable. They say that God is immutable, which means that God doesn't change. To say that God is immutable, though, is not to say that God does not have something akin to emotions. When Christ lived his life, man and God, he was not a robot, but fully engaged in human life, which means emotions. But it is to say, if he's immutable, that he is not controlled by them or even fully defined by them. And I think we have insight into God's heart in the change from the wording. My people have become your people, whom you, Moses, brought up out of Egypt. And all those verbs, they have been quick to turn away. They have made themselves an idol. They bowed down to it. They have sacrificed to it. And they have said, These are your gods, Israel, who saved your life. I've seen it. Never underestimate the power or depth of your personal fallenness. 
the closest human emotion for us, I think, in understanding where God is, is probably walking in unsuspectingly and finding your spouse in the very act of infidelity. Sin, my friends, is a big deal. And sin does not create peace. It vandalizes it. And so God says, now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn. Anger may burn. Anger may burn against them. Anger may burn. I wonder what that means. Probably something terrible. My anger may burn against them that I may what? Say it together. Destroy them. The people he just brought out of slavery. And for Moses, that is completely undesirable. There seem to be two undesirable choices here that create God's human dilemma. Many of you have probably read, uh, if you're my age or maybe a little bit older, a book that was popular in the 70s uh, called, uh, it was by Robert Persig, it was called um, Zen and the Art of Motors. I, I forgot it for just a second. I haven't read it in a long time, but there was a piece that stood out. Uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Somebody read that? Anybody? Am I the only? A couple of people have read it. In the, in the, the book, he describes what a dilemma is according to the Greeks. To the, to the Greeks, a dilemma was a bull with two horns, or like a long horn, or you know, an animal with horns. And the dilemma was this. If you go to the right of the problem, you get the horn. If you go to the left of the problem, you get the horn. It's a dilemma what to do. In this particular case, horn number one is for Moses is these people are going to die in their sins if God visits them. His anger is burning. His desire is to destroy them. Horn number two, existing in their sins if God separates himself from them. But there's always a third response with those horns. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Go between them. And that's what Moses does. The third response to the dilemma is to go between the horns. Moses steps between Israel and their sin. And God and his wrath and anger as a mediator and an intercessor. He says, Lord... Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? A long story short, God does change his mind and says, okay. And Moses goes down the mountain. He gets Israel back on board and on the right path. He returns to God and he states the desire of his heart in light of all of this undesirable stuff. He says in verse 32, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. You know, the funny thing about all of these conversations, if you read them closely enough, one of the things you discover, God never answers directly any of Moses' questions. But he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send the malach, the messenger. A lot of translations say agent. The idea is more of an agent. Somebody that has the power of attorney for God. 
and you follow him, you'll obey everything. If you don't, he'll destroy you, but he's going to lead the way. And the news that God is not going to lead the people to the promised land causes great sadness in the nation among the sons of Israel. But the upside is this. The upside is that Israel has an intercessor who speaks to God on their behalf face to face as a friend. So Moses says to God, I understand. But how inappropriate would it be for you not to lead your people into the promised land? You know, when it comes to those power of attorneys, sometimes it really is inappropriate. I mean, I could just imagine what Ellen would have done if I had sent my lawyer, my power of attorney, to our wedding to do the vows for me. Or could you imagine somebody sending his power of attorney, his agent, his messenger, to his mom's funeral in order to, to mourn for her? And Moses says, please don't do that. And God says in verse 14 of chapter 33, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And it's at this point that Moses' relationship with God has gone to another stage. It, it's passed through another threshold. Moses wants to see God's face. I mean, that's what happens when you're really intimate with someone, right? There are just times when all I want to do is just look at Ellen's face. I won't dare say the opposite. She would just want to look at my face. I mean, who would want that, right? But intimacy is, is staring in each other's face. But that's impossible because Moses would die. We know that. It just being in God's glory up there on top of that mountain changed Moses' face to the point that it scared the sons of Israel and he had to wear a veil whenever he spoke to them. It was so changed. But God knows what is in the heart of Moses. His friend. His friend. And he decides that he is going to let Moses in on the inside. So God places Moses in the cleft of a rock. We sing about it. That's where this song comes from. And in this uncanny language, God is standing beside Moses. And he passes in front of Moses. And in one of the deepest revelations in the entire Bible, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh God, showing mercy, showing favor, long-suffering in anger, abundant in loyalty and faithfulness, keeping loyalty to the thousandth generation Nasa, bearing away iniquity, rebellion, and sin, yet not clearing the guilty, calling to account the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons and upon the sons' sons, the third and the fourth generation. It's caused no little consternation, but I'll tell you what I think about that last part. It's a community. It's not a, a, a community of individuals. It's a community of, it, it's a collected community of people. When one sins, they all sin. When one does something honorable, they all get the honor. 
In this point in time when people were living maybe to 40 years of age, there were three to four generations present, probably closer to three. And when something bad happened, it happened to everyone who was there. And so he's talking about the community suffers for what the community has done. And this, this passage is basically given once in chapter 33, once in chapter 34. And it reminds us of this, that Moses' tenacity to change God's mind was grounded in God's tenacious intention to save. Moses looks at God and sees the faithfulness and the loyalty and the love And he's been there when they grumbled and when they murmured and has seen how God has responded and what God has done to get them to the promised land. And he's tenacious with God because he knows that God is tenacious about saving Israel. And he lays his face down on the ground and he worships and he asks, verse 9, forgive our wickedness and our sins And take us as your inheritance. Bottom line for Moses. Forgive and make us your inheritance. And the answer that God gives Moses is even better than he expected. The very next verse says, I'm making a covenant with you. Something happened before creation. It was a decision which leads to something that is unimaginable for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul tells us that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. One of the things that God reveals about Himself is that He bears the sin and the iniquity. Where did that happen? In this particular story, God does not want to bear it. God nearly destroys it and the people. So what does it mean? It means something unimaginable for us, that before the creation of the world, it was decided that another would come down to his people who had gone astray and overrun with idols. And he would not bring the Word of God down with him because he would be the Word of God. And he would step between God's holiness and wrath and judgment and the sin of the people and would literally bear their iniquity. And he would make a new covenant with the people. He would be the one who would bear the iniquities of those And he would lead his people to the eternal promised land. It's a greater Moses. We know him by the name of Jesus. This morning, we're going to sing a song. And during the singing of this song, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And we all have needs of one kind or another. Some of us have needs that we need to pray over. Others of us have needs in which an encouraging word would go a long way. But there are those who also need an intercessor, a mediator, to stand between what separates them from God and life eternal.
And that is who they are with what they're capable of doing in their own personal fallenness. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is that that sin, that wall that separates us from God is torn down by that mediator, that intercessor, the one by the name of Jesus because he takes all of that which stands between us and God and puts it on himself. It's his blood and it's his body that is given as the payment for our sin in order not for us just to get a pardon, but for us to be revolutionized. Forgiveness is a part of salvation, but it's just a part. What God is doing is remaking you. He's not giving you a new leaf. He's giving you a new life. He's giving you His Spirit. He's giving you His family. He is giving you Himself, His Word, in such a way that you are never the same. And you move from point A where lostness and darkness it abounds to a place of beauty and of light and not always without difficulty of life in a fallen world but a place of purpose and of significance and adoption and and a name and a place and if that describes you this morning our shepherds down here at the front, would love to talk to you more in detail about what it means to access that. And for the rest of us, it's an opportunity for us to praise God and to stand and to sing as we do it. Let's stand. You are beautiful beyond.